Hello, welcome to True Crime Broads. This is Crystal. And Renee. And tonight we have a very special guest with us. We're so excited. And Renee, would you like to go ahead and introduce our guest? Yes, um, we are so honored to have Joseph Scott Morgan with us. Um, he um, is a um, death investigator. Um, Joseph, tell us a little bit about what you do. Uh, yeah, well, uh, I'm, you know, now I'm the Distinguished Scholar of Applied Forensics at Jacksonville State University in uh, Jacksonville, Alabama, not Florida. Awesome. <laughs> uh, people get, get confused with that, but now I teach forensics. We have actually have an applied forensics program here, and it's one of the oldest applied forensics programs in the South. It's, you know, we've been doing this sort of thing for many decades now. And, uh, and in addition to that, I, you know, I appear on national media and, and that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, and, uh, um, on a variety of different shows and formats on the ID channel, you know, I've been on several of those shows. I've kind of cut my teeth with HLN though. I've been with them, you know, appearing with them for, since I guess 2013, I think the first, yeah. the very first case that I ever covered. Um, and here's that name is Jody Arias. And, uh, you know, and if I never hear her name again, as long as I live, it'll suit me down to my bootstraps. But, uh, uh, you know, so I go back a few years with them and I'm, I'm kind of the forensic guy, their fallback position for forensic guy. And, uh, um, you know, I'm uh, appearing on a, they have these kind of short run series that they're doing now. And right now I'm on the one called sex and murder. Uh, and, uh, I've been, uh, appearing on the premiere episode of it. And earlier this year, I was on, uh, the dead wise club. I did, uh, Natalie Wood with them. That was earlier. Oh, wow. And so, and then, you know, I, I, uh, I appear regularly with Nancy Grace, generally about two to three times a week with her on her serious XM show. And then now it's been picked up by Fox nation. So she's kind of a, a double, uh, threat. She's coming back into the, you know, into, uh, the spotlight, you know, she's never really left, but when she left HLN, you know, she went directly to Sirius and you got a pretty big audience and, uh, do that with her. And then I'm on law and crime network, which is Dan Abrams. You're familiar with him from, um, live PD and, uh, good morning America. He's a legal consultant for ABC. He has his own live trial channel that's basically internet based, but it is now being picked up by it's kind of like court TV. Um, and I'm their forensic analyst on there and I'll generally pop on there generally two or three times a week. As a matter of fact, I think this upcoming Tuesday, I'm going to be on air with them. We're doing a live Facebook, uh, Facebook live with them about, um, the Tiger King case. And I'm going to discuss, um, discuss, uh, how, uh, how easy or what methodologies could have been employed to get rid of Don Lewis's body. Um, he was allegedly fed to tigers and all this sort of thing. And, and, you know, so that's, you know, be talking about that, but, you know, I hate to prattle on about myself, but just so I'm not just an academic, I spent, um, well over two decades as a medical legal death investigator. I was with the coroner's office in uh, Metro New Orleans. That's how I started my career. I was the youngest medical legal death investigator in the country. Started down there in a major office, started down there, worked down there, and then 
I took a position in Atlanta where I was a senior investigator with the Fulton County Medical Examiner's Office in Atlanta and, and finished up there. And, uh, you know, you're, uh, human beings aren't meant to spend their entire life standing over dead bodies. It's just, it's not, it's not something that we're, that we're equipped for. And, you know, what, what I did and what I teach now um, is not investigative pursuits from a law enforcement perspective. It's from a medical legal perspective. So I, I come to things from the eyes of, you know, the coroner, the medical examiner, and examine, you know, the examination of bodies. We're the people that are actually on the scenes, contrary to what you see on television. It's not forensic pathologists to go out to the scenes. There's very few forensic pathologists in the nation. So that's something that Hollywood has kind of jammed up. So it's going to be coroners, deputy coroners, coroner investigators, and then medical examiner investigators. And I've worked in both the coroner system and a medical examiner system. And so that's kind of how I made my you know, my bones and spent a lot of time in the autopsy room, dissecting bodies, you know, did right at about 7,000, I guess, over the course of my career, in addition yeah. to working. And you talk about a lot of that in your book, right? I do. And uh, the book came out in 2012 and 2013. I won uh, Georgia Author of the Year. Uh, it's a memoir. It's actually a therapeutic memoir. It's, uh, you know, you, you know, when, when you, dealing this stuff for so long it's like i was saying i you know i have a lot of kids that come to me that are very starry-eyed you know they get to college and whatnot and and granted i mean there's a whole world of this stuff that's out there now and they see it but they don't see it for what the price that you paid they think that every case you're going to go out and work is going to be some kind of oj simpson case or jody Arias case or you know, you name it, you know, some kind of high profile case like Chris Watts that I was deeply involved in that case, uh, covering it on the air. Oh, wow. And so that's just not, that's not something that is going to occur to you. That's going to happen. You have to, I tell them from a medical legal perspective that, uh, that people don't really understand the concept. And I'll give you, let me give you a brief example. When, when I began to, you know, kind of dig back into Missy Beaver's death and was looking it up, I just put in, um, you know, put in a, a search for Missy Beaver's and just to see what I would get. And to give you an understanding of, of how much misunderstanding there is about what we do in my area, when you plug in her name into a Google search and say Missy Beaver's cause of death, the first thing that will pop up will say murder. Well, murder's not a cause of death. As a matter of fact, murder's not even a manner of death. A manner of death, or there's only five, and there's, you know, homicide, suicide, accidental, natural, and undetermined. Murder mm-hmm. is a lawyer's word. It's not something that it's on, it's statutory law. You'll see it um, in states all around the country. You know, they'll say this individual's committed murder. I prefer the term homicide, you know, because it's very clinical. It's, it's detached uh, because anybody can commit a homicide. You know, you're not judging the person, you know, police officer kills somebody in the line of duty. Uh, well, that's a homicide. They'll try to paint it up to be something else, but it's a homicide. You literally have one person taking the life of another. And unfortunately the media and people that sort of have a real hard time trying to, uh, 
excise that or to, to separate those two things. They, they don't really have a real clinical mind. Uh, I was covering a case on long crime network uh, a couple of weeks ago, and there was a really nasty homicide that we were covering in Iowa and they, and defense had put forth a motion where the, uh, and the judge agreed with it that the forensic pathologist on the stand could not use the word homicide because it was too prejudicial. And, <laughs> and so you've got all these kind of weird, quirky things that go on in my field, right? you know, and so it's, it's kind of an odd, an odd bundle. It really is. That is so awesome. And that's great that you're doing a live Facebook on Tiger King. That is huge right now. It's all anyone's talking about, you know, since we've been on quarantine, it seems like. So that's yeah, and I do remember Dan Abrams, you know, I followed a lot of cases and he's covered so many of them. I'm thinking, I think even back during the Scott Peterson case, I remember yes. he's the person that I watched the most. Yeah, he, yeah, he did. And he's always got an interesting take, you know, he, he'll get, you know, maybe two to three minutes, maybe five minutes on a segment on ABC, Good Morning America. That's where everybody knows him from. But for people that watch live PD now, you know, because that's apparently a huge show, you know, and it's really gotten into the, into the fabric of folks that watch TV. You know, if you gravitate toward, you know, the, everybody used to watch cops, it's kind of, sort of like cops, but it's got a new spin on it. And then law and crime, um, you know, that's a different spin too, because it's not done like it has been done in the past. And uh, it's, it's been a real joy to do that because unlike other shows that I might appear on where, you know, I only have, I only have like a few seconds to say something, you know, like I yeah. could talk for days and days about the Chris Watts case, right. but if you're, if you're on HLN, you might only get maybe four minutes. Well, when we were covering his sentencing hearing, uh, I'll give you an example. I was on there for three hours and every time we'd take a break or do something like that, we could go and you know, I, I'm the only non-lawyer that's there and I'm talking with the lawyers about, you know, my perspective on this and the, the community, the people that have an interest in trial watching, for instance, they get to chime in, they'll ask questions and, you know, and, and that sort of thing. It's real interactive. And that's something that, that I enjoy because by nature, I'm a teacher. I like to pontificate, <laughs> stand up and, you know, stand up and, and that's, and, uh, you know, for me, it's, it's golden because I can kind of, hopefully do something in my own little way to kind of sweep away some of the, the less than accurate, you know, uh, data that comes out, you know, uh, in the media and that sort of thing and talk about what's real and what's not real. Right. Now, Joseph, we, um, Renee had mentioned your book a few minutes ago for our listeners. Um, our very, our most recent Instagram post is actually the cover of his book. It's called blood beneath my feet. And it says a journey of a Southern death investigator. So that's really exciting. Um, well, thank you very much for posting that. Oh, absolutely. That. And uh, we're just so excited to, that you came on. And I have a question about yeah, sure. the Weaver's case. Um, now, the they obviously sealed a lot of things in this case. Um, it's just, you probably know more than I do how secretive law enforcement has been about this case. And one of the things is they sealed her autopsy and yeah. um, from what I know, it's still sealed. And I imagine that's because Midlothian PD doesn't want the general public knowing her cause of death. And have you, is it common? Have you found that um, law enforcement will seal the autopsies? Yeah. And, 
and it is very common. And and let me kind of explain this to to your listeners because I'm sure you know. Look, your listeners your listeners are bright people. Okay. And the reason I know that is because they have an interest in this and people don't come to, to podcasts, true crime podcasts without at least having a base understanding of it, but it gets confusing sometimes. And, you know, for me, because you don't know uh, all these cases that I cover, you don't know it's hit or miss depending upon the jurisdiction that you're in. Some people, you know, they'll just, they'll release the autopsy report almost immediately. You know, you'll get, yeah. Um, I remember the, is it, uh, Teresa Sievers? Is that it? Yes, Sievers? Yes, yeah. It Her case. We waited for a long time to be able to see a lot of the data from that case. And there's any, any number of the other ones. Uh, again, I hate to keep referring back to it, but Chris Watts, for instance, but when I covered Jody Arias with Travis Alexander, I had, I had data just dumped in my lap, you know, relative to that, that, that came forth really quickly, but you know, they, they kind of closed, they closed in on that pretty quickly with unfortunate God, God bless Missy uh, kids. I, I hate this. I, yeah. it, just, it yeah. sickens me to my back teeth. It really does. It uh, does. But, but you know, with her case, this is still an open active, you know, investigation. Now let me kind of explain to you the relationship that the medical legal community has with the police community. Now you guys have got, a kind of an interesting <laughs> you guys kind of in your state you have kind of a very interesting setup for your medical legal and world that you have there you know because it's it's you, you guys don't me. have you guys don't hey i love texas man uh but you guys don't have uh you guys don't have corners and so the de facto corner in in the way it has been traditionally in Texas has always been your justice of the peace, which is kind of a, a weird kind of configuration. Now you guys do have medical examiners and matter of fact, one of the finest, one of the finest forensic centers in arguably the entire world is right up the road from y'all in, uh, in Dallas. And I think it's uh, South, Southwestern, Southwestern forensic. I, I can't remember the exact title, but it's, it's the, it's one of what we consider one of the spiritual meccas of forensic pathology because that's where Dr. Petty was located. Okay. And fine work and research, you know, up there. It's it's produced some of the finest forensic pathologists in the world. But back to my point, when you're dealing with an open homicide, okay, most of the time in many jurisdictions, I can't speak to Texas specifically, but most of the time, what will happen is that the DA and the sheriff's office or local constabulary will go to the medical legal authority. Okay. That individual that holds, that holds control over that data. And they'll say, listen, uh, we would prefer that you not release this information. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now sometimes it's necessary for the medical legal side of the house to release the information. Uh, and that can come spring from a variety of different scenarios. You think about, uh, let's say the circumstances we're in right now with this disease, you know, that's floating around with, with the virus, you know, you, you want to try to get that data out there. You know, if you're doing autopsies and you think that people may have been exposed and, you know, because it's not just homicides that in the medical legal community, we investigate, we do epidemiological work as well. I mean, we investigate natural deaths and suicides and motor vehicle accidents, industrial accidents, unexplained deaths. We, we cover the gamut. 
The police, however, are oriented in one direction, one direction only. Their interest essentially begins and ends at homicide, and they don't want anything that's going to interfere. So if you get a forensic pathologist or a medical examiner or a coroner in some states that wants to go on air and start having their own separate press conferences about what status of a case is, that runs the risk of torpedoing what the police are doing because you're giving out if, if say for instance, they drop knowledge about Missy's case that is very specific when they, if they do hook somebody up and I certainly hope that they do and they drag them into that interview room, if they have too much data on their side, that is the defendant. If they show up, they're lawyered up. They're going to, they're going to know what to say and what not to say. And so it's very frustrating for the public. I hear this all the time. You know, the public, they want the information. They want it to be released. But that does not serve the public's best interest because in y'all's <laughs> circumstances in particular, you're looking at arguably one of the most violent events yeah. that uh, – let me let me see if I can phrase this. You're you're looking at an event that is just rife with interpersonal violence, hatred. Okay, mm-hmm. and in y'all's little community up there, you've you've got somebody that is potentially a psychopath that's running around there. People are terrified. Absolutely. Now that may have died down a little bit. I hope it hasn't but it's hard to maintain that level of fear for that period of time. You kind of warm up to it after a while, right. uh, unfortunately. And in, in this particular case, people are terrified. They want to know, you know, is this idiot still out here that perpetrated this crime? Right. Because that's, that's, that goes to the heart of who we are as human beings. We want to know that we feel safe in our house. You know, we feel safe if we go, Hey, look, if my wife goes to the church to go do aerobics, or do, you know, the gladiator, you know, thing that Missy was involved. I want to know that, you know, when she shows up in the church parking lot, she can make it from the car to the, to the church house intact. And then when she's in there, she's going to be safe. I don't want to know that there's a mad person roaming around with a, uh, you know, with a a finishing hammer in their hand. Right. Because it's absolutely terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. Really so I hope did. I answered your question, but that's, you no, no, thank you. that's I'm kind of going a long way around the barn, but that's kind of, that's kind oh, of what, it. that's kind of what, what it is. And we face that all of the time and it's a real frustration. No, it truly and, is. And I'm really glad that you gave us that from a professional point of view, because we do get frustrated. And I know that our listeners are frustrated because after four years, people are rattling the cage and just saying, why isn't MPD talking and why isn't the media holding them accountable? And, you know, you answered that question really well. We needed to hear that, um, that this is still an open investigation and it's active. I think it's tempting to think it's a cold case, but we don't have any indications from MPD that it's gone cold. They just have gone silent. And so everyone's imaginations are running wild. But I think the reality is, is that it is active case and they can't tell us certain things. And the autopsy is still sealed. And we just have to keep hoping that that means that they're working towards getting this person in, like you said, hopefully, you know. Yeah, I, I do too. And there's, there's a lot of things there. Are so I, I can almost promise you, there are things that are, that are known to the local law enforcement and to the prosecutor that 
none of us are privy to. They have more information. And I'm not saying they're being, you know, deceptive in any way. They just know things that they know that are in the best interest of the public for everybody not to know. Because if you allow the public to have that information, ergo, the perpetrator has that information or individuals that are peripherally associated with the perpetrator. Let me give you a great example right now. I've been involved since I think two days after it happened with the Delphi deaths up in Indiana with the two little girls. Mm -hmm. And I have covered this thing intimately the past two crime cons that I've gone to. I've had my wife and I have sat down and had coffee with the grandparents. They're there. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're faithful in what they do to try to keep the memory of these two little angels alive, just asking for any information. And you know, that little town of Delphi is much like y'all's town. It's tiny. I mean, you don't wind up there on purpose. You know, I mean, you want, let me rephrase that. You wind up there on purpose. You don't wind up in this place by accident. Okay. It's, you got to be going there in order to wind up there. And it's a lovely little town and it's gorgeous. It sits up on the Wabash river. And, you know, you wouldn't know to go, you wouldn't know if you just plop down in the middle of that little park out there where that train trestle is, that arguably one of the most horrendous crimes in recent memory took place because it's pastoral. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody goes down to the cafe in the morning, has a cup of coffee, you know, all the farmers come into town and you know, everybody knows, every, you know, small town, everybody knows your business too, right? You know, everybody oh. knows each other. And, um, and those people are equally frustrated because they don't have all of the information that has, you know, that is obviously in the pocket and in, uh, you know, in, within the, the data set that the investigators have. And there's, there is some similarity in what you're looking at with Delphi because, uh, you know, both cases, for instance, you know, you have, uh, um, you know, uh, this digital element that's involved in both these cases. You know, the, you know, you think back to the, in Missy's case, you know, where you've got this, this, what is it, the Nissan sedan where they're trying to capture that license plate and they're trying to get the information off that. Right. You're trying to do the metrics on this videotape you know, from inside the church at the same thing with, you know, with, uh, with the Delphi homicides, uh, you've got this recording of that. One of these brave little girls took, can you imagine that up on that trestle and you're filming this guy coming at you and they actually get his voice on tape. Well, that thing's going to be enhanced. And, you know, and here's another similarity. You're talking about gate issues with both of these people. You've got images of that guy walking across the bridge. The FBI has been involved in that. You've got, you got Missy's case with this person that looks like 250 pounds of chewed bubble gum, you know, walking through that, you know, walking with that, that police gear on and, you know, with that funky slew footed gate that they've got. Well, trust me, they've got a lot of people that are looking at this thing. You've got people that are involved in, um, in, uh, um, setting up the digital parameters of, of how they can enhance film. You've got people that are analyzing it from just a, a movement uh, perspective uh, and a dimensional perspective. And there's a, there's a lot to be, a lot to be said in these both. So you've got parallels and you guys both share this commonality of being small town America and, you know, uh, right in the center of God's country, man, in both places. And you're frustrated 
because there is nothing, I mean nothing, that has come to the top that the public can be aware of. However, I can tell you this, the authorities in both of these locations have information. Now, they haven't shared all that information. Right. And someday, you know, we we hope, we can only hope that we're going to see them put the silver bracelets on somebody in both of these cases. Right. Is there ever a time, because <clears throat> I've, I've, I've listened to a lot of different cases <clears throat> where sometimes they give a, a little bit more information, the police do, um, is there ever a time when they decide, okay, let's let's give a little bit more information, see if we can't strike up something? Is that does that ever happen that you know of? Yeah, I mean, I was live on air going back again. Uh, I hate to keep you know referencing these other things that I've been involved with, but I see some parallels uh, with the Delphi case. You know, they they had that famous, and I, I'd recommend all your fans to to go and watch this. And this is a prime example of how the police can do this. Uh, that, that one instance where uh, they had the, the, uh, state police superintendent and he, they set up this, this, uh, this, uh, media event there in the little town hall, there in the little gathering area in, in Delphi. And they called in all the media and they made a big deal out of it. And this is after they hadn't been getting anything. And he, if you can watch that superintendent at that podium, he is talking directly to the perpetrator the entire time he is giving them information he is telling them specifically we know you are in this community you have connection this community and you can rest assured we're going to get you now that's a fantastic example that's of, awesome of what they're doing to try to draw this person out now i cannot speak i cannot speak to missy's circumstances because i have not seen a um, I've not seen a press conference of that nature uh, with her and I haven't seen everything. Okay. So I'm, you know, I'm kind of bumping around dark without a cane. I, I know what you're talking about. And I remember thinking while I was watching a clip of that fairly recently, um, Renee, remember you and I watched a show on the Delphi at the same time one night. Yes. And, um, it was about a week ago. And I remember thinking, I wish that MPD would look in the camera and talk to the perpetrator of Missy's murder that way too. I think that's, I, I don't, I don't know how effective that is, but it, it seemed like as, as, as a person following the crime and wanting that person so badly to be caught in the Delphi murders, as well as Missy's, it made me feel better. It, I don't know what I liked about it. It really does. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah and it, uh, it, it, it really could potentially, but it all depends on, it all depends on what kind of cards, you know, law enforcement is holding at that particular time. We, with the Delphi case, when we were analyzing this, there was something else that's, that was stark about that case that happened that again, you know, kind of knocked the breath out of all of us. Cause we watched this in, in real time happening on the air. I was actually in studio in, in Atlanta when it happened. Um, we, we were watching this thing and, uh, the the I don't know if you if you or your your fans saw, saw the uh, saw the initial uh, rendering artist rendering of this fellow that they did. Well, this guy looked like a you know a forty five year old truck driver that had you know three chins. Okay, yeah. They unveiled a new profile, a new picture of this guy at the press conference, and suddenly this guy is like 
20. 40, 40 pounds lighter, and he's yeah. gone from 45 to 25 at this point yeah. in time. And you could have knocked us over with a feather. Yeah. And that's because, and the only reason they would do that is because they've come into fresh information. Ah. Okay. They've come into fresh information from what they initially thought. And then a lot of people were saying, well, did they take that initial sketch from, from the, uh, from the videotape that they, uh, that they filmed of him, you know, the, the video images of him coming from across the bridge or did somebody else see? And so it was, it was striking. It was one of those aha moments, but still yeah. to this day, they don't have anybody in custody. You know, and they even have audio in that case because the, the man says, go down the hill or something. Like yeah. That. He says he's at first, the only thing that were releasing was him saying down the hill down the hill, yeah. down the hill. And then they added at that press conference, again, another big reveal that they did for that thing was, he said, we've got more of his voice. And again, we all kind of collectively drew a breath when he said, um, he said, okay, I think it, I, I'm, no, I'm going to get this wrong. But he said like, um, okay, guys, down the hill. Okay, guys, down the hill. Um, you know, and Immediately, you know, a lot of us are thinking, okay, saying guys, he's referring to the two girls. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, down here in the South, you know, what do you think I would say? Well, not I, I wouldn't be in that position, but right. if I'm referring to two people, I'd probably say y'all, <laughs> you yes, know? Exactly. And so it's, it's kind of the regionalization of speech. And so with that case, I suspect more than likely, they've gotten a linguist, a forensic linguist in, involved in this case as well, which is, which is kind of fascinating as well. And the FBI has, you know, the FBI and other agencies have all kinds of tools at their disposal. It's just, it's a matter of being able to catch their attention and hold their attention long enough because your case is very important to you where you live at home. Okay. Your right. case is important to y'all right there. Your case, the case in Delphi is important, but all the while, you know, these agencies like the FBI, they've got other people that are tugging on them because there's other cases popping up all over the place. Well, we want you to help us with this. And so, you know, you begin to, to look at it and, and they can do, they can do a lot of the analysis and this sort of thing. Uh, but it's up to the local PD to follow up with it. And one of the big knocks that I kind of have, and I kind of talk to my students about this many times, is modern forensics is fascinating. I mean, it is almost, it's almost, it's almost like you're looking at it sometimes and you feel like you've discovered fire. You know, when, when I think about all those years ago, when I first came into, into forensics and I see now what we can do, just DNA by itself is fascinating. However, the problem with technology is, is that sometimes it can make us lazy. The, the old, you know, uh, you know, uh, I, my, my granddaddy was, uh, he raised horses, he's a cowboy. And we, I grew up in, I was born in North Louisiana. And a lot of people say that North Louisiana is merely an extension of Texas, essentially. Right. So, uh, you know, my heroes were always like the Texas Rangers. And, you know, and people like that, the Lone Ranger and deputies out, you know, and sheriffs out West and all those sorts of things. And you think about those guys when they were, yeah, you could have, you could probably have technology that was involved in solving a crime, but what really gets crime solved is shoe leather. 
It's going out and knocking on doors. It's out rattling cages. It's out shaking something until it comes loose. The forensics points us in a particular direction, but I'm seeing, you know, some generations of police officers now that, um, that become uh, complacent because they think that, you know, quote unquote, the boys down at the lab are going to solve this for them. And that is not necessarily the case in all these cases. You have to get out and you've got to shake the trees. You still got to make that happen. You got to knock on doors. You got to get up close and personal with people and show them that you're vested in this case. And I have no doubt that your constabulary are, but sometimes you just have to keep turning rocks over until something pops out. You know, I have been saying that for, go ahead. Oh, oh, I was just going to say, I'm so glad that you said the name, the word lab, Joseph, because um, in this case with the Mitzi Beavers case, there was apparently some kind of DNA recovered at the crime scene and they released MPD released uh, later. They said, yes, we did get some DNA, but unfortunately it wasn't usable. We sent it to the lab and they said it was both. Um, they characterized it as partial and mixed DNA. So it was both right. partial and mixed. And he said it just wasn't usable. So yeah. how hopeful are you that maybe in the future, um, the DNA um, processing will improve the technology and maybe we will be able to get something out of that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I am hopeful that that'll happen. You know, that, that, that it will be able to be, you know, that amplification can take place essentially as our technology improves, but, you know, going back, I'm kind of, I'm a very simple minded kind of guy. I, I'm not some fantastic genius. I always fall back to the very simplest things. And I've seen more cases ruined because agencies do not protect evidence um, like it, like they are holding on to the Holy Grail. And you have to understand that because to these families, that evidence is the Holy Grail. And you have to be able to hang on to it and maintain that evidence and maintain security of it and make sure that, that literally years from now, that this evidence is still going to be viable at some level because yeah, we might not have the technology. I mean, how many, how many cases have you guys seen in the news lately in the news lately that are being solved on, you know, based on evidence that was collected 30 years ago. Right. And that is, we're moving, we're moving at an exponential scientific rate right now. I I don't think there are things that I cannot even in my limited mind, I cannot even envision that we're going to be able to do in the next 10 to 15 years because people are researching this stuff all of the time and it is increasing twofold. And also how about the exonerations, you know, from the DNA? Absolutely. That's incredible Absolutely. too. Just amazing. Yeah. How many, how many people are sitting, you know, because you know, the old adage is, you know, everybody in prison is innocent. You know, that's, that's, you know, you know, you remember famously, <laughs> you know, uh, Morgan Freeman said that in Shawshank Redemption, I think, you know, yeah. you, you're just like everybody else in here. You're innocent, you know, and everybody claims to be innocent and, but you have to figure that some folks are innocent. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that's heartbreaking. Uh, yeah. Yeah. They're not guilty of something else, but that's not what they've been convicted for. And so you have to be real careful with that. I, by the way, I hate the term innocent. I don't like that term because nobody's really innocent. You're not guilty. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. So it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of like using the word murder. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's good. It's good for TV. It's good for if you're going to a play on Broadway or something, but, you know, let's just stick, let's stick to what we know. You know, it's factual. You're not guilty. And this is a homicide. And so, um, 
it's kind of the you know kind of the way you you, you kind of look at it and you know you think about it in those terms as well. We've tried to figure out in our minds what we could what possibly they could have gotten DNA wise because the perp was completely covered from head to toe. They had on gloves. Um, I mean, it, we've tried to think in our minds that we don't know if maybe there was something under her fingernails. You know, we, we were we trying to imagine what it could be yeah. in hopes that, you know, it would be something that could yeah, be. Now, I don't know what form, I don't know what form they would have collected this DNA in. And let's just say, um, let's just say they don't have complete strand. When they're saying that, you, you, sound, you said they've got a mixed sample, which means that's commingling. Uh, so that would mean that you've got a commingled sample of Missy's blood and perhaps something else. I don't know what that something else would be. Uh-huh. Uh, but it sounds like that is commingled to the point where it's contaminated. Then you said that, I believe you said just a second ago, you had either a partial or a partial. Yeah. And to me, when you say partial, that sounds as if that could be maybe a touch DNA issue. And in 16, touch DNA was not, it was a thing, but it wasn't a thing like it is now. If they held on to, uh, say, Missy's clothing, for instance, which I would imagine that they did, um, they could have gone back and done another search over, over the surfaces of those items and may have recovered some, you know, we lose, just to kind of frame it, we lose thousands upon thousands upon thousands of skin cells daily. You know, that's why Jergens is, is so wealthy <laughs> because <laughs> we've all got dry skin, right? Some people are drier than others. All right. And so we have dead skin cells that are sloughing. I mean, while we're sleeping, while we're walking, while we're doing anything. And so the reason that they, and this is just one thought, it's not necessarily, you know, the gospel truth, but, if you think about it, it could be partial because they've got this, uh, they've, they've recovered this from one of these dead skin cells and it's not a complete strand that you're looking at. It's compromised in some way. So that might be, and that's just me taking a stab with the dark in it. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I had a more general question. Um, sure. This is, pertains to um, your profession more is I'm not clear. And I bet a lot of our listeners aren't. What is the difference between a coroner and the medical examiner? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's a, that's a fantastic question. And um, they're still roughly just to kind of set it. First off, let me ask you this question. I'll put y'all on the spot for a second. Okay. And you can't use Google. Okay. Do, do? <laughs> now, do I have y'all solemn oath that you're putting your phones down? You're not yes, going to yes, I things. promise. You All got right. it. All right. What is the origin of the word coroner? Um, corn. Corn. Okay. Anything Probably else? something Latin that I'm not, a, that I don't know. <laughs> okay. Coroner. Let me think coroner. I don't know. Y'all aren't looking on your phones, are you? No. Okay. All right. I'm, you're on, you know, you we're on the honor system here. We are. <laughs> okay. The first time I ever heard the word coroner, I thought that, well, the thing that jumped to mind for me, because I've always been a science nerd, was that, okay, if it's a coroner, more than likely it has something to do with coronary artery, you know, coroner, you know, it sounds like it has some, you know, the heart stops beating there. Right, right. It's nothing like that. It actually comes from Middle English and it's, it comes from the word crowner. 
and oh. coroners, coroners were actually knights, if you will, uh, that went out and uh, they heard what were called, they heard the pleas of the crown. So uh, you know what a sheriff is, okay? Well, yeah. sheriffs, when they were first brought into existence, uh, they didn't, they had a law enforcement role, but their law enforcement role is pretty much strictly tied to tax collection. And still to this day, sheriffs collect, collect taxes. They have a tax uh, a tax section, you know, that handles this in many jurisdictions. Well, coroners collected taxes too. There's a whole history that goes behind this. But what would happen is you guys have heard of the term death tax, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, back in the times of like Richard the Lionhearted and, and all of that, uh, the coroners were tasked with going out and assessing a death tax on people. You say, well, what could they get for that? Well, have you ever heard the old adage that it's, it's against the law to commit suicide? Have you ever heard that term before? Oh, yeah. Somebody say, yeah. okay, well, it's not technically the truth. It used to be. And this goes back into British common law so back, so far back in time that it probably predates the Magna Carta. Um, the, what would happen was, was that they weren't back during that time. They were not so much interested in, in homicides as they were suicides, because if you committed suicide back during this period of time, your family forfeited everything. Wow. I mean, hogs, chickens, sheep, goats, if you had cattle, houses, children, wives, everything, <laughs> money, and so what they would do is they would send they would send these representatives out to examine the body and it was another source of revenue. So wouldn't it be interesting if you if we could actually go back in time and try to say well was, were there a higher number of suicides back then than there were homicides because it was in the crown's best interest to rule these things as suicide because the local, you know, the local lords of that area and certainly the king would get more of a share if somebody died. So that's kind of the origin of this. And one other interesting thing, it's uh, if you ever take a look at the Magna Carta, I think it's like the 27th or 26th line of the Magna Carta. This thing is written in, I can't remember. I think it's written in Middle English. You can't really read the thing. Two words that are recognizable in there are the word sheriff and coroner. That's how far back they go. And that's like in the 1200s. So this office is really, really old. I mean, it goes back a long, long time. Well, when America was settled, we brought the corner system here from Great Britain. It was was not a physician. It was a position that was in early times. It was appointed. Then it became elected. Still to this day, corners are elected. I think we probably have corners in 26, still 26 states in some form or fashion. You'll have like uh over in Louisiana, for instance, where I, where I was trained, uh, all of the corners in Louisiana are physicians. You can't run for parish corner there unless you're a physician. If there is not a physician, a dentist can run. If there's not a dentist, a vet can run. But you have to have some understanding of pathology, okay, at least at a base level. Okay. Uh, you come to other states, and you can run for corner just with a GED. Wow, okay. Let that sink in. And you have oh. no, the only thing that you can't be is a felon. All right. And that's wow. going to vary from state to state. Some states require that you meet certain standards. 
where you have a medical examiner, medical examiners are not, are not, uh, uh, they're not elected. They're appointed and medical examiners are generally physicians. And you start to talk about like, uh, up in Dallas Fort Worth, for instance, or down in Bear County or, you know, any of those locales in, in, in Texas like that, uh, uh, these people are appointed and they're highly trained. They're forensic pathologists. And so, but yet you have these little counties that are all over the country and they still have elected coroners and these people are not bad people. They're just, they don't have the resources and the education. You know, people don't think about death until it, it hits at their home. So they don't, coroners don't get the same kind of training that a sheriff does. If you, right. if you get hired by the sheriff's department, you're going to go to the academy. You're going to be trained. You're going to have resources, all these sorts of things. Coroners, uh, in some States, that level has been kicked up, thankfully, but in lots of other places, it hasn't, you know, and then you go to States like Oklahoma, Utah, uh, let's see where else, Florida. Um, there are several of them where the corner system's been completely kicked to the curb. They now have state med. Oh, New Mexico, you have state medical examiner's offices and it's regionalized. They don't even have corners anymore. And then you got these weird amalgams. You can go to places like, uh, let's see, where is it? Oh, I'll give you a, a wild example. You go to California, who's supposed to be so progressive and on the cutting edge of everything, right? <laughs> well, the sheriff and the coroner are the same person in, in California. Wow. <laughs> so how do, you do an, how do you do an independent investigation? Okay. Yeah. And like we had mentioned, you know, in Texas, you guys have the Justice of the Peace. That's kind of the de facto medical legal authority. Um, I covered uh, Justice Scalia's uh, death out in West Texas on the air, and I was shocked. Matter of fact, I wrote an article about it um, because the Justice of the Peace that was on duty that weekend when Justice Justice Scalia died at that hunting camp out there in West Texas, uh, she never even examined his body. She pronounced him dead over the phone. Just let that sink in just for a second. Now, that doesn't mean that anything bad had happened with Justice Scalia, but I guarantee you this, every person that has a basement and has a tinfoil hat will be, you know, making up stories from here on out yeah. because no one actually examined Justice Scalia's body. Wow. You know? and, I had no idea. So you have all this craziness that kind of goes on all around the country and it's, it's, it's perplexing. I mean, it, it's very perplexing. You want, you want the best that you can possibly have for your local community and corners do the best they can with what they have. I know of corners that use their own private vehicles to haul bodies. I know corners that don't have storage facilities to store bodies. Um, you know, and, and there's, those stories are everywhere, you know, and it, it's a horrible set of circumstances. And then when the current situation that we're in with, with COVID-19, if that, you know, it looks like the death, the, you know, thank God the death total looks like it's going to be lower than what they were projecting. But, you know, all it, all it takes is for, you know, just a couple of people in a small community to contract this thing, you get it into the elderly population and suddenly they're dying Funeral homes can't handle the influx. You know, what, what's a, what is just a day's work in New York could potentially be an absolute disaster in a small town. You know, oh, yeah. you don't have, you don't have coolers. What are you going to do? Call a refrigerated truck and you're going to have to, you know, and even in New York right now, they're having prisoners dig mass, mass graves. There's been like two or three articles about that. 
where they're taking these COVID bodies and they're allegedly burying them in these mass graves to temporarily hold them there so they can bring them back out. You know, the, and so it's a real nightmare scenario. People don't think about this stuff. People, you know, my, I always tell the story uh, about, uh, uh, you know, when my wife, my wife and I first met, uh, and I don't want to go too far afield with it, but the first date we ever had, uh, we'd gone to a ball game, a Braves game in Atlanta, and I took her out to this pizza joint that's really a cool little place. And we're sitting there, and she's a school teacher by trade, and she was asking me about my, you know, what I did for a living. You know, so I, every every lady wants to know about what, what the guy does for a living that you know that right. they're that they're courting, you know, and I, and you know, and I go into this story about how I'm a senior investigator with the medical examiner in Atlanta, and she's like, I've never thought about this, and <clears throat> what do you do, you know, and all this stuff. And then she looked at me from across the table and she said, you know, until I met you, I never thought about death. (laughs) (laughs) So you can take that any number of ways, you know, (laughs) when you hear that, but you know, she's, she's, you know, my wife's a salt of the earth kind of person. She's a public educator. You know, that's what she did. Public educators don't sit around and think about death. It's people like me, you know, that go out and they look at dead bodies day in and day out and, that's try to awesome. figure out what happened to them. I so, love yeah, it's your first date too. <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, it's don't awesome. tell me I don't know how to treat a lady. Okay. <laughs> That's great. I love it. Um, you know, you mentioned earlier that the Texas, um, that in Dallas, they've got the County medical examiner's office. That's a big deal. I didn't know that Renee, did you know that? No, I did not. And um, I do remember that's where they took Missy's body, which surprised me when I first saw that because I thought that's kind of a long drive from um, Midlothian, you know, down in Ellis County. But it makes sense to me now. I'm glad that you um, told us about that, Joseph, because I didn't realize that was sort of like a, a world-renowned place. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's 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 top of the line. It's a fine. I've, I've worked with many doctors over the course of my career that that were trained up in Dallas. And of course, you know, as I mentioned, if, if you guys are, your audience is not familiar with Dr. Petty, Dr. Petty was arguably one of the finest, finest friends, forensic pathologists of his generation. I mean, he's, he's up there with, um, you know, the William Eckerts of the world and, and all of these other people that kind of, you know, would inhabit, would inhabit our Mount Rushmore. If you could wow. imagine that, you know, people that, you know, that did research, you know, that, that research conducted research into death and think about doing research relative to forensic pathology and that sort of thing. You have to be able to work where you have a large population, you know, in, in Dallas, Fort Worth, that area up there, you know, you've got enough cases that are coming in and they're having to service just like they service uh, you all. Uh, they have to service these peripheral counties and that goes on in a lot of different places. You know, and I'll give you an example. I live in Alabama and I teach university here in Alabama at the Jacksonville state university, our little County that I live in, uh, our closest, uh, closest forensic pathology, uh, forensic pathologist is in Huntsville, Alabama, not Huntsville, Texas, but Huntsville, Alabama. Wow. It's two and a half hours from here. Mm-hmm. So it's a poke. I mean, you, if we have a homicide, it's not just my little county. It's all little counties around us. And people say, well, why can't you just, why can't you just do this? You know, why can't you just have the hospital pathologist do the autopsy? Yeah. That worked out real well in JFK, didn't it? Oh yeah. (laughs) Because arguably 
you guys had a very fine, this is predates Dr. Petty, but you guys had a fine forensic pathologist in Dallas. But they took President's body away to be autopsied, you know, over, I don't know how far it is to Bethesda, Maryland, but it's a poke, <laughs> you know, oh, they, wow. um, to be autopsied by three, they had three pathologists in the room that had never done a forensic autopsy. And I'm not, I'm not saying that to be conspiratorial. I'm just saying it's common sense. But yeah, right. it's homicide. It, it, it should stay there. It should have been worked there. That certainly didn't help. There's decades of conspiracy theories, you know. Yeah. yeah and, and everybody, everybody with a tenfold hat again has, I mean, think about, listen, wouldn't it be great if it just the three of us could get together and, and split the pile of cash that's been generated on books written about that one homicide. No kidding. We'd never have to work again day in our lives. Exactly. So, and it has been fodder. It has been fodder. And if they had just taken that one simple, and this is something that should be Monday morning quarterback. People say, well, you shouldn't look back in Monday morning. No, this is a prime example of what you don't do. You know, you don't remove the body from the place that the principal investigation takes place. You say, well, you're talking about that. And you're saying that it's good that the Missy's body went to Dallas. Well, yeah, because it's within the state and competent forensic pathologist there. I'm glad that they, that she went there because I know that that office there is going to do exemplary work. Um, and they have nothing to do with law enforcement. I mean, they have nothing to do with the shoe leather part of it with going out and knocking on the doors. They're there to assess the bodies that arrive in a competent scientific manner that marries up with standard forensic, uh, processes that are recognized and all of those people are board certified up there. And that's what you want. The problem is, is that, you know, um, there are fewer, there are more brain surgeons in the United States than there are forensic pathologists. You say, wow, they must be really smart. No, they're, it's not that they're smarter. It's just that forensic pathology is really one of the few jobs that I know in medicine where the more education and certifications you get, the less money you make. Oh, wow. If you work in a private hospital and you manage a, a lab and you're doing set, you know, like you're examining tumors and doing all that sort of thing that a hospital pathologist does, uh, you're, you're making a good living, you know, and you're not having to deal with, you know, forgive me, but you're not having to deal with decomposing bodies right. and working for the government because that's where you're going to work if you work as a forensic pathologist. And so you have to, the people that do it really have to want to be there. And there's very few of them, you know, there's probably, I don't want to say, I mean, I don't know off the top of my head, I'd say there's probably fewer than uh, probably maybe 500 board certified actively in the United States. And you say, well, gee, that sounds like a lot. Not when you start talking about offices like New York, Detroit, Chicago, Atlanta, Miami, Dallas, Houston. What does that leave for everybody else? You know, so every little county is not going to be served by a board certified forensic pathologist. And that's a problem, particularly if you've got homicides and you've got these really complex cases where you've got massive wound tracks, somebody that's shot multiple times. That's not something that you want some person that's been doing tumor examinations in a local hospital to slip on down to the morgue and examine the body of, you know, uh, a 300 pound decomposing body that's been shot eight times with a 25 caliber pistol. And you've got multiple wound tracks running through the body and you don't know 
what shot killed this individual. You don't have the competency to do that, the professional competency to do it because you haven't been trained for it. And that's a real problem. And one of the reasons it's a real problem, it comes back, you guys have heard the CSI effect, it comes back to the perception of the public. Public sees things on TV and they say, I want that. I want that in my community. And then when the cops and the coroner and everybody else and the DA can't provide that to them, they get very frustrated. They don't understand why they don't have all the whiz bangs because the whiz bangs are not available to everybody. That's just, that's the nature of it, you know, and, um, and people are, people are smart now. It's not like it used to be, you know, you, uh, you know, you could, (laughs) you could have forensic, you could have forensics and people would peripherally be aware of it. Okay. And they, they would know that forensics existed, but they, they didn't really understand it. You can't drive through a trailer park in Southern United States without seeing a small little dish attached to the outside of the trailer house. And everybody's got that information coming into their house. Now they watch true crime. They see all of these high end scientific shows and they've got just enough information to be really dangerous now. And so when the authorities show up at their house, they're going to ask some hard questions and the authorities sometimes are not prepared to answer those questions. That's very true. That's amazing. Yeah. You've hit on so many things that I hadn't even thought about um, as far as the whiz bangs aren't available to everyone and not everyone has the same access to these professionals that, that can do these types of examinations. That's so interesting to think about. Um, and frustrating at the same time. It is frustrating. It <laughs> is particularly. I'm happy to hear that Missy was taken to such a good um, medical examination office. That, that's really comforting. Yeah, it is. And in, in, in the state of Texas, I, you know, I, I've got friends that worked there over the years and whatnot, and I'm familiar, you know, with, with some of the systems there. And I know that traditionally you guys have had, um, have, have been very blessed with, with highly competent forensic pathologists. You know, Dr. Uh, Dr. DeMaio was, was down in, in Bear County down in San Antonio for years and years. And he's one of the most highly regarded, um, forensic pathologist in America, you know, I think he's, he's pretty much retired now, but he wrote probably the definitive text on gunshot wounds. Uh, and that's Vince. If your readers want to, you know, readers, I'm sorry, if your listeners want to check out interesting reading, just put in, you know, an Amazon search for, uh, 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 gunshot. It's just the title of the book is gunshot wounds, Dr. Vincent DeMaio. And his, his daughter is, is also, very bright. There's, uh, I think a brother as well. Um, uh, they, they've all written various texts, but yeah, you know, he was down in San Antonio for, for some time. So yeah, you guys have been very fortunate, very, very fortunate in Texas. Yeah. That's really good news to hear that. Um, cause I don't, I, I didn't have a handle on that. Did you Renee? I didn't, I learned a lot tonight from our podcast. That's for sure. Oh, absolutely. Um, one of the things I want to ask you, um, you know, there's been a lot of, um, of speculation in this case, but just specifically, if um, if a person was um, shot by chance, you know, shot, and the person wanted to cover that up, is it possible um, to do that? Or in, in what you do, do you have, you probably have the ability to be able to tell, even if they try to cover that up. Do you know what I'm saying? What I'm asking you? Yeah, yeah. Now, are you... Uh, we're not talking about Missy right here, correct? Just so that, or is that, or do you, or do you, do you entertain the the idea that maybe she had been shot? Yes. 
Okay. Yeah. One of the things that, let me tell you what they would have done up in Dallas. Um, they would have done, um, first off, they would have done, uh, uh, a full, uh, AP, uh, what's called an AP, uh, x-ray of her body. And they would do, that means, uh, just imagine this, I guess they could do laterals too, but just imagine, you know, just like when we go to the doctor, okay. And they tell you to put your chin up on the, on the little stirrup up there and you're getting a chest x-ray made. Um, They do that with a portable x-ray machine. And so uh, a body would be laid on, on the, on the tray or on the table. And then the film would be put, uh, put beneath the body and they would shoot an x-ray looking down. Okay. And in Missy's case, and I'll address her case specifically because I understand that she sustained pretty significant, all I know is that pretty significant head trauma as well. I think, and please, you guys are the experts, but please correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, uh, potential back and chest trauma, I believe. Uh, you know, head, head and chest is what we've always heard. Okay. And I understand at least I have heard, and I don't know if this is true, but they address some of these wounds as puncture wounds. Yes. And, um, and that does give you pause. Now, when I see the aforementioned, you know, blob of 250 pounds of chewed bubble gum walking up and down through the church there in the police uniform, mm-hmm. it appears they're carrying a claw hammer. Yes. And uh, that claw hammer could easily generate, you know, and I'm merely speculating here, could easily generate what would be puncture wounds, but they would have a very specific appearance to them, uh, as opposed to, say, if somebody took a a piece of rebar, you know, like reinforced steel, um, and drove it through a body and that's a puncture wound. Um, and that's different than stab wound. Okay. The fact that they, the fact that it has been stated and I think by the police or someone in authority at some point in time that she sustained puncture wounds mm-hmm. says a lot. And that means that they are specific defects that are not, associated with knife injuries. Okay. So we can rule that out if that's what we know. Now, let me go back to what I was saying about the x-rays. What they would do is, uh, if, if someone had been shot, one of the things that we look for is what's kind of a, this is kind of a pseudo scientific term, but like a lead storm. Okay. So if you're shot, even if there's not still a projectile in the body, um, you're going to look for like a little metallic storm that's contained within the body and it'll kind of follow the wound track and you'll see these little opaque, uh, little dots of, uh, specks of white. And that's the, that's actually uh, the, uh, the, the lead track that's left behind by the bullet because the bullet will at some level fragment and that'll, that, that, uh, that's going to luminesce in the, in the x-ray. And that's just looking straight down. Now you can see it. We're getting into kind of a spatial orientation here, but you can see it if you're looking down. Okay. Mm-hmm. You can actually see it on the film, but you can't really orient it unless you do what's called a lateral. And uh, that means that they would take a side shot, you know, where they would hold the film to the side of the body and then shoot the x-ray going across kind of transected the body. So you get a, you get a, an idea, a spatial orientation where you're looking down you say, Oh, look there, there's a lead storm. 
let's see where it tracks to. You do the lateral view and you can actually kind of follow the track with a bullet. That doesn't happen in every case, but it happens in many of the cases. And that's something that they would have been clued in on, you know, in, um, in a case like this, they would, and look, they're going to do an x-ray on her because uh, if she has sustained this much trauma, they're going to want to have some kind of documentary evidence uh, that demonstrates what they saw before they ever opened her body at all. And they want it intact. And this, this goes to the pristine nature of, of the body at the time that it's received in the morgue because you want to have that. And I'll, I'll tell you another little piece of information here that a lot of people don't understand about autopsies and about, you know, documentation. If you've ever watched trials or ever heard about trials, we take tons of photographs at scenes and tons of photographs at autopsy. Many of the times the defense will say, well, these are too graphic. They're too prejudicial. We're not going to admit these photographs into, into evidence so that the jury can see them because they're going to unduly influence the jury. You know, yeah. and that's, you know, you feel about that how you want. That's just the way the court handles it. One of the cool things about it, though, is if you do x-rays, what's prejudicial about an x-ray? We've all seen an x-ray. You don't right. see blood. You don't see gore. You don't see deformities that are caused by trauma. All you see is this kind of black and white image. And one of the most powerful things you can actually see at autopsy, or I mean in court, is when they flip that radiograph up on the screen and you see that lead storm or you see that lodged bullet that's in the body, it's powerful at that moment in time because most people have seen x-rays and they see that body lot, that bullet or projectile or let's say it's a piece of a knife or whatever it is that's left behind. It, it actually is striking to the jury. You'll see them kind of, their eyes will open, you know, when you get that reaction immediately from them and they're talking about, this is what we saw at autopsy. We x-rayed the body beforehand. And that's something that they will have forever and ever. Amen. Um, is it possible? I, I would, I would have a real hard time uh, being able to, to say that, that, that that happened in this case. I would think that, that, some of that information would have come out. Now, what the pathologist would have done, they would have examined Missy's body very, very carefully. And those injuries that she had sustained, if they are all puncture wounds, are going to look definitively different upon initial examination from a, from a gunshot wound. They are going to look completely different. And it'll be striking you know, the, the difference between the two, um, the, the bullet wounds tend to have a, a, a regular to irregular kind of circular shape, mm -hmm. depending upon the angle that they went mm -hmm. in. Uh, some of them will be kind of a liptoid, if you will, with, uh, these hammer strikes though, they are so grotesque. And so, um, it's something you never forget once you see it. And I've seen a lot of them and I still recall them to this day and they look completely different than say, for instance, if you're using the, the hammer end of the, of the, of the hammer itself, the flat end, um, those injuries look different than say these puncture wounds that they're talking about that I can only assume that the individual would, they're saying what they're saying is the hammer would have been flipped around. Mm -hmm. and, and used yeah. in this manner. Um, 
and there's a lot that can be read into that. Um, there's, you know, for me, when I hear this and I think about this and I don't know anything about Missy in particular, but when I've seen cases like, like this, where you've got, um, a bludgeoning case, it's completely, it's in nature and kind of the profile that you come up with about the perpetrator. It's completely different than if it was a gunshot wound or even a stab wound. Bludgeoning is one of the most personal things that you will ever encounter in, in the field as a death investigator. It is striking. Sometimes it's sensory overload because you see how much hatred mm-hmm. and anger and animos is contained in the person that's having to do this because it is up close and personal. The person that would have done this would have had, uh, uh, I would say a significant amount of body tissue on them. The perpetrator would have, they would have, that would have transferred over to them. And, and a lot of that's going to be dependent upon the number of strikes. And right now we don't have that information, but if it's a multiple event, uh, you know, multiple strike event, you would, you know, in my experience, when I've seen bludgeoning cases, um, you get these perpetrators lots of times in their clothing. It's just bathed. It's just bathed in blood and tissue, not just the blood itself. You'll get this transfer that comes over because it's a very interpersonal thing. If the other person fights back at all, you can have uh, specific contact. Um, you know, people are wrestling, people are fighting, you know, that sort of thing. Cause it's a very primal act. It's, it's, it even, it far exceeds anything, even stabbings to me, it does. It's, it, they're, they're the most horrific cases to work. I can only imagine what the investigator saw at the scene. Well, that's just breathtaking to hear that, you know, it's just incredible. And it, it does lead to a question that popped in my head when you were talking about the claw hammer stabbing. Um, when the medical examiner um, receives the body and they're about to start the examination, does law enforcement give them a briefing? Do they say we have on video someone holding a claw hammer? Do they have any kind of background? any hints or are they strictly just starting with zero information other than the body in front of them? In a perfect world, you're going to have a, you're going to have a lead investigator standing dressed out in a Tyvek suit at the autopsy table with the physician. Okay. That's a perfect world. And they're going to have very personal knowledge. I've worked cases with, um, I prefer working with rural investigators more than I do city investigators most of the time. And the reason why is because um, rural investigators tend to be very, you know, we mentioned a term early on stakeholders. Uh, They love their communities. They live in these communities. You know, this is not something that happens every day. Right. So they're, um, they, they are there lock, stock and barrel buddy. And, um, you know, you've, I've been, I've been in, involved in cases where we have rural investigators that are there for these, you can see the fire in their eyes when they're standing there. And this person is somebody that may have had coffee with, they may have gone to church with, they might be related to them in some peripheral way and you can see it and it's all over them. And so, yeah, my suspicion is at least is that they would have had intimate knowledge of the scene uh, I don't know time wise though. That's the key. Um, because there's been a lot of, there was a lot of kind of 
static, you know, that went on about this case relative to accessibility of the tapes, whether we had tapes, whether we didn't have tapes and, and that sort of thing. And I'm real unclear and fuzzy on the timeline on this, but most and let me kind of frame this out for you. Um, you guys don't remember what day of the week her death took place on, do you? I mean, Monday. I know a date, it was on a Monday. Yeah. So more than likely, uh, there is a high probability. Now, I don't know this for a fact. Uh, I've worked in really big shops. I was assigned to the state, state medical examiner's office in Georgia for a while. And, you know, we would start at 8 in the morning and many times we wouldn't get through until 8 at night, you know, because we had bodies coming in from all over the state. And um, you have a scene, which I would assume they took some time to process. Um, she very well may have come directly from the scene and have been autopsied that same day. Uh, or uh, they may have waited until the next morning, you know, to get Missy would have been in the next group that would have been done on that Tuesday. And so time is an important element here because, you know, it's not just about the body. It's about all the peripheral stuff that's going on around it. Because, you know, let's say, for instance, um, you've got videography, you know, you've got the CCTV footage. Well, they've got to have time. The investigators would have to have time to be able to sit down with the preacher and say, what kind of security you got here? Do you guys have tapes? And again, there was some for me, and maybe y'all can set me straight on this because I don't know. Um, confusion about you know where you know uh, is there tape is there is there not tape that sort of thing so i don't know what they had at that time and that's going to be real important for framing it for the forensic pathologist remember what we said earlier forensic pathologists don't go to crime scenes that's the me investigator or that's the uh, the local police in this case unless they have an investigator that comes down from dallas that represents the pathologist uh would be present there perhaps but you have to contextualize this for the pathologist. You know, the pathologist is working in this, in this lab. Okay. They're getting us a, a, a body that is being sent into them. That's going to be traumatized greatly. You, they've got clothes. They're going to have to be examined and removed from the body and photographed. They're going to have to do x-rays and all this stuff. They can't contextualize the scene. They don't know what it was like in the specific area where her body was there. Cause there's a lot to be said. If you're an investigator, you've got this, you've got orientation to time and space. You, you can look around, you can see lighting, you can see uh, if there's blood spatter, you can get an idea of the orientation of the blood staining relative to the body. You can see how dynamic the scene is. Well, the problem for the forensic pathologist, they can't contextualize any of that great data that's coming in from the scene along with the body. Now I've worked cases before where is and specifically hammer cases where the police physically brought the hammer, you know, to the autopsy along with the body. And we were able to take the hammer and literally match it up, take photographs of the hammer adjacent to the wound. In this case, we don't have a hammer, you know, to do that. All we've got is this imagery of, you know, this person, you know, walking around clutching this thing in their meaty claws. So, um, you know, that's, that's certainly something to, you know, that, uh, that you would prefer to have, but it's not always the case. Wow. That is, that is such great information. Um, 
I mean, it really does help, and, and I'm I'm certain it's going to help our listeners understand so much more uh, things that we were just completely clueless about, you know, because we just obviously we just don't have that knowledge, so <laughs> we're just kind of going by what we can, you know, what little bit we know and what we see on TV, I guess. Yeah, and and that's the problem. It, it truly is. But you know, the best thing you can do, um, the best thing you can do for 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 the law enforcement, um, you know, I listen. I, I've had cold cases, and I'm I'm not afraid to to admit this. I've had you know I've had cold cases where I've sat my sat at my desk and I've cried because oh, I, I don't have I, I don't have answers. You know, I don't have answers for family. I don't have answers, and it's frustrating. You've got the public that's putting pressure on you, and you're that one person that's there trying to put this puzzle together, and you're fending off. You know, you're fending off somebody on the on this side. You're fending off somebody on this side. And you got somebody that's asking for something, and it's a very frustrating position to be in. And and then when you you don't necessarily have the skill set, maybe you don't have. And that's not a slam. I'm just saying you. Yeah. You know how many bludgeoning deaths have you worked over the course of your career? Right. In a church, you know, in a place where everybody's supposed to feel safe. Right. Not too many people have done that, even in big cities. And so you're sitting around, you, you kind of feel like you're on an island many times as an investigator. And um, you, you're sitting there and you're, you know, you're scratching your head. And you want the, you want the thing probably closed up worse than anybody else, this side of the family, uh, because it's, you, you're vested in it. You know, you've, unfortunately, you've, you know, you've had to see the body. You've had to see what kind of havoc and hell was wrought in that church, you've had to look into the eyes of the family and you're carrying, you know, you're carrying these burdens around with you, you know, throughout the entire thing. Oh, and by the way, you need to solve this case. Right. <laughs> so yeah. it, it can be, no pressure. <laughs> it, it, yeah, no pressure whatsoever. And it is, it is, uh, you got to do yeoman's work. I mean, you got to put your shoulder to the stone and try to shut down everything else and just focus on the case. And it's, it's very, very difficult. And, you know, all I can say is if you believe in prayer, pray for, pray for them because it's, it's a burden that not too many people understand, uh, what you, what these guys have to do and gals, you know, that, that tote the baggage on these things. And it's very frustrating. I, I was getting emotional just listening to you describing, you know, hammer, you know, the claw hammer type, the things that you've seen in the past, that, that type of injury. And it's just incredible to think about seeing that up close as your job and trying to sift through. It's hard. I, I still teach, you know, I still teach it. Uh, I, I teach it uh, the police academy four times a year. And I, you know, I stand up there on the lectern and I've got like, you know, a hundred, 120 cadets, you know, they're in this big room and they, they all look like they're, you know, they've all got peach fuzz. <laughs> they, <laughs> they look like, you know, they're all kids and they are kids. You know, you look at them and, um, you know, and one of the things, you know, I, I teach them about the, you know, I talk to them about the, the basic, the basic science of forensics and, and death investigation, this sort of thing. But one of the things I try to impart to them and they have to understand it going in full well is that it's kind of like this. It's kind of like they look at you in the eye and the day that you finish, uh, finish your training and you're going out on the street and maybe someday you become a detective. It's like they give you a big old burlap feed sack and they say, listen, 
for every death, every death that you handle throughout your career, uh, it's going to be represented by one pound stone. And you're going to put that stone in this feed sack and you're going to tote it on your back. And no matter where you go, what you do, you can't put that sack down. And you're going to carry this with you for the rest of your life because you see things and you hear things and you experience things that no one else can identify with. Right. Nobody. I mean, nobody. And it's death, you know, even with families, you know, families will have this traumatic thing that will happen in their life and they are shocked to the bone by it and it will haunt them for days, for years and years and years to come. But the thing about it is the investigator goes from that one to the next one and yeah. it never ends and you carry this. And so you, there's no way to kind of, you know, the metaphorical feed sack, you can't put it down. Right. And no matter how much counseling you do, no matter how many people slap you on the back and say, brother, we're praying for you, you know, turn it all over to God or, you know, whatever it is that they tell you to try to assuage what you're doing that they can't identify with in the first place, you're still going to have to go out and do it because you're, you're cleaning up what everybody else in society has no desire to be a part of. Right. And, um, and you have to make an active choice to be there. And that's the rub because many people say, well, just quit. You know, you don't, nobody's holding a gun to your head. You don't have to do it. Well, somebody's going to have to do it and you feel like you have a, a, a gift for it. And, um, it's a, it's a tough thing. And that's why we have to support, we have support investigators and understand that the things they might not always want to open up to you. They might not always want to talk about what they've seen. The biggest insult in the world that you can ever ask an investigator. And I write about this in my book. Um, one of the biggest insults that you can ever say to anybody, and it can be somebody in public safety, uh, an Emmy investigator, a police officer, a fireman, a nurse, and even to a certain extent, a physician, a paramedic, the the most horrible thing you can say is say to them, what's the worst thing you've ever seen? Mm -hmm. Because oh, wow. many times what they believe they're hearing in their mind is I finally found somebody that wants to listen to me. Now that's, that's kind of at a, a primal level. I got somebody wants to listen to me. I'm going to be able to unburden myself. And the next thing you know, you're spilling your guts to them and you're telling them, this horrible thing that you've seen and that you've experienced and their eyes are getting bigger and bigger and you're hearing them and it's building up to a crescendo. And then all of a sudden the story's over with, they turn on their heel and they walk away and they've got a great story to tell somebody else. You're not going to believe what this guy just told me, but yet you're still left. You're standing there and you, you're still, you're still toting those rocks uh, and you haven't put them down. You, you, you just simply become a source of entertainment at that point in time. It's a horrible thing. I mean, most people, it's like, uh, you know, you, you go to somebody else that you might know and you say, Hey, listen, uh, uh, I don't know, sell insurance or teach school or whatever. Just imagine if you went up to everybody in these other occupations, tell me about the worst day you've ever had in your life. Right. Tell me about the worst thing you've ever experienced at work. And, <laughs> you know, that's not something that would be normally expected. You know, right. but for people in my field, it's, it's commonplace. You know, tell me about the worst thing that you've yeah. ever seen. Yeah. People. And yeah. Right. Yeah. And so most of the time, you know, I just kind of smile and grin. Other times I feel like, I'll tell you what, once you do this, once you go down and get a job, get a job at a coroner's office, 
And if you want to know this so badly, you go experience it for yourself and see how willing you are to talk about the horrible things that we bear witness to on a daily basis. Right. It definitely gives you a newfound respect for your job. You know, for, for people who aren't familiar, like, uh, like ourselves, um, of what you, what y'all have to do. I mean, we had a general idea, but you know, it, it definitely gives you a newfound respect for what you do. And, and, um, I, I can only imagine how hard it is. And, you know, some of have gotten out of it is empathy. I really, you know, thinking about the emotional aspect of it, I, I kind of picture guys in lab coats, you know, very sterile environment. Um, but you, your guys are human beings too. And you're looking at people who have potentially been bludgeoned in a, in a horrible way, like what you're describing. And that's just amazing that you guys can just face that over and over and over. And like you said, I can only imagine how long you must carry that around forever. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful I survived. I've got friends that didn't, you know, that uh, it, it ate them alive. And I'm very thankful for every day. And my, my career, my career and what I've done is a cautionary tale for everybody. That's all those kids out there that I teach that say, Hey, Professor Morgan, I want to do exactly what you did for a living. And you have to be very, very careful what you wish for and what you ask for. Because yeah, it's the scientific, the, the, the who, the what, the when, the where, the how, those things are fascinating because those things are rooted in science. The question you have to always run away from, you have to flee from is why, because you'll never, that's the most unstable. It's the most unstable question to ask because there is no definitive why you'll never get back to it. You know, why would Chris Watts stuff those little girls down into those oil tanks out in Colorado? Why would, why would Jody Arias cut that man's throat, you know, and then shoot him in the head after he's dead? You know, why, why, why? Uh, And we could just run down the litany. You know, why did Ted Bundy do the things he did? We, we don't have answers to that, but you know, the thing about it, if we return back to science, if we can keep it on the foundation of scientific inquiry, You know, what happened to this individual? Where did it happen? When did it happen? How did it happen? You know, those types of questions that can be almost quantifiable, you know, we can apply a number to it. Why is very difficult to apply a number to It's So, and everybody's going to have a different take on it. I mean, everybody and their brother will have a different take on it because it's, it's the unanswerable question for most of this madness that we, that we take a look at. You know, I was on, I was on air the night that the Vegas shooting happened. And I, you know, I, I, I couldn't believe what I was hearing because I was covering another case and this thing's coming through my earpiece and I'm hearing reporters, you know, crying. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we sat there and we listened, you know, I could hear them saying, we're up to 10, we're up to 12, we're up to 15. And then we hit 25 deaths and they were like, Oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. And you're covering the single Bible in the air and you sit there and you ask why, you know, why yeah. did he do it? There'll never be a definitive answer to that question. Never. Right. And that's the hardest part. Yes, it is. Um, I know that you worked, um, you had, you had mentioned that you uh, had worked this case or, or not worked it, but um, discussed it with Nancy Grace back in 2016, right? Yes. Okay. Where does your, your, um, where do you stand with this case now or how has it changed what, since, since then being at four years now, we're, we're just a little bit shy of four years. I think eight days. I think that, 
I don't know what, what has left me with, with Missy's case is the fact that <laughs> the, the most striking thing to me is that it's such a small community. It's such a small community where you have all of these specific data points along the way and this thing had been solved. That that's what's so striking to me because the evidence is so very unique in this case. Um, you know, the, the thing that hit me first and, you know, I guess it hit a lot of folks was the gate, you know, the gate of this person. It just, I know that that has been beat to death. You know, it's just people talk about it and talk about it and talk about it. But for me, uh, I remember being in a production meeting with Nancy, you know, the night that, 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 that took place and we were on the air and, um, it, it was striking to us. Uh, you know, I think even, I think even, uh, even Nancy was quiet for a moment. <laughs> you know, it, 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 it was that glaring, you know, it's like one of those pregnant pauses where you see this right. and think, because it was, if I remember correctly, when we were covering this, it was one of those things where uh, she actually goes live. She's in the middle of her show and she says, we have got a case right now that we want everybody to focus on and, and look at. We have got the videotape from, you know, and it's one of these things where she's building this thing up. And, you know, the, the, the fact that we had this, this uneven, weird gait, the, the structure of this person's body is so odd. You know, they're, uh, you know, it, there's a reason why, you know, why I think they look like 250 pounds of chewed bubble gum. You know, they just kind of blump, 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 you know, and you, you compare and contrast that individual to Missy, you know, and she's in tip top physical condition. And you look at this person and, you know, kind of lumbering along, going up and down that hallway, checking those doors and they've got the hammer in their hand and, you know, their face is covered. There's a lot that we can draw on that. You know, first off, why'd the person cover their face? Well, obviously they have, they have an awareness that there's cameras in this location. Mm-hmm. Um, they're trying to disguise every inch of their body. I think you catch a couple of flashes of like, if I'm not mistaken, like the mouth and the chin, and you can see the person's kind of a light skinned person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I might be wrong on that. That's, that's my recollection. Yeah. You see the specific, the specific equipment that they're wearing. Um, you know, why, why would you choose that? Um, and how they gained access to this location, the time at which they arrived at this location, because it, it, it exceeded that time, which, which Missy showed up. And so that gives us an idea that, that this person possessed foreknowledge. So all of these little bits that, that you're kind of throwing into the mix, you're creating this funnel of information and the structure of this funnel and all the while that stream's getting more and more narrow. That's what's so striking to me about this is the fact that it hasn't been solved because there's a tremendous amount of physical evidence, you know, relative to interpersonal contact and this kind of, uh, you know, I I don't, I have no idea what happened. Uh, I mean, I really don't, I don't know what happened within that little space where Missy lost her life to this animal, but I know that there was contact and I know that if we just take Lacard's principle, which is Lacard's exchange principle, that means, and it, that this this principle is something we live by in forensics. And just take this to heart, y'all. 
it states, and it was, it was, this guy developed this over a hundred years ago. He states that every contact leaves a trace. And so we know that there was intimate contact going on. And I don't mean that in a, you know, in a, uh, a blue way, you know, like a, uh, sexual way or anything like that. I mean, there was intimate, this is up close and personal. This is violent. So there has to be some kind of trace or uh, transfer of evidence that's taking place in this environment. You couple that with the violence of this attack. And from what we understand right now, this is a very, very violent personal attack. I still have a real hard time understanding how it has not come to a conclusion. At this point. Us too. We, none of us thought after four years of, and you know, having that much video and of course law enforcement has more video that they haven't released. So we've, we saw the forensic podiatrist, um, Dr. Nuremberg was on the HLN special about Missy's murder that aired last summer. And he was talking, he was referencing parts of the video that were not released to the public. So we do know there's more video, but it's just, it is, it's, it's unbelievable that it hasn't been solved yet. And, you know, earlier you were talking about the why, about how frustrating it is that you can't figure out the why when you're looking at these horrible injuries. And, you know, it reminded me, and I'm paraphrasing because I'm not sure if I'm remembering it correctly, but when the Golden State Killer was finally caught, um, I believe it was a reporter asked law enforcement, you know, why, why did he do these things? And he just said, because he's mean. Yeah. I mean, there really wasn't a motive for any of that stuff. And I think yeah. as normal human beings, we really want to assign a motive that we can wrap our heads around. But sometimes it's just maybe this person's a psychopath and maybe they just felt like killing and they had some knowledge of that person beforehand or and they just thought it was time. You know, I just, it's, it's unbelievable. I'm just, I wonder if maybe it's just more something like that since it's taken so long. I don't, well, I don't think, you know, for me, and this is just, you know, this is not a randomized event. This yeah. is, a, you know, we've heard the term targeting, you know, oh, with yeah. this, and I believe this person had, had personal knowledge of Missy. I think, I think this person, uh, knew Missy's schedule, obviously. Um, cause what are you, you going to do? You just gonna sit around in your police uniform all the time. Right. You know, the one that you bought offline or wherever in the hell it is that you acquired this, this suit of clothing from and, and the equipment, it's not just a suit of clothing, it's equipment, you know, that you're toting around with you. No, they, they specifically set up a specific time and it's really interesting because it was raining yeah, it was boring. raining that night, and I think that if I'm not mistaken, please correct me because I don't want to be disrespectful in any way relative to what the facts are around the case. But it's my understanding that Missy would normally conduct this, this, or at least part of her class outdoors, right? Yes, absolutely. and so that gives us an idea that you know someone may have known that she was going to be driven inside. Well, if you're driven inside, you've got a contained, protected area. You're not out in the open conducting an attack. Mm-hmm. You know, so. Um, you've got, you know, you've got that element going on right there and and it goes to, to specific knowledge about a thing. Yeah. You know, most psychopaths, you know, when you see, and I'm not a forensic psychologist, but when you, you see psychopathic behavior, you know, in the truest sense where somebody's in a real, and there's all kinds of psychopathy that are out there, but you know, if you got like a frenzied killer, you know, it's going to be real randomized. It'll be if they've got multiple, multiple people, I don't know, 
whatever it is, they're having hallucinations. They, they think that everybody's a, a, a dragon, you know, and so they're going to go out and, and kill as many people as they possibly can. Or the person in front of them is suddenly some kind of manifestation of something else. You know, that's one type of killer that you have. In this particular case, we've got a lady that does what she does several times a week, if not every single day. Mm-hmm. It's regimented. She lives a very regimented, ordered life. Um, and it's it's one of these things where it's it's very predictable. You know where she is going to be. It probably, she probably knew where she was going to be at every single moment along her life because she had to plan it. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't get up at that time of day to go. You asked me to get up at whatever it is at four thirty in the morning to go work out. You can forget it. That's I'm very gonna, admirable. Yes, you know, yeah, it is. She, she was, you know, she she soldiered on, man, and she was serving these people. You know, there the people, you know, people trying to get their life right. You know, and mm-hmm. people that want to get up equally <laughs> early for whatever reason. Uh, you know, she she had a very ordered ordered way about her, and and to that point, this person had knowledge of that order. And that's the scary thing about it. Yeah, it is. Because they sat back and they observed her. And I I would really I would really be interested, you know, and when this whole whole thing is all said and done, I'd like to know if, if the rain influenced anything. If they said, Oh, well, you know what, it's raining tonight, so I know that this is going to drive her inside. That's what I've been waiting for. Right. You know, so I, I have no idea. All of this is, I'm spitballing at this point in time. I just have no idea. Yeah, it's a fascinating case. And I, I'm i just so thrilled that you came on and talked to us about this because I know that our listeners had a great time listening to this. I know Renee and I certainly did. And um, Renee, did you have any more questions for Joseph? No, I think I, I got on mine in. Did okay. you have anything else? Perfect. You know, I just want to thank you, Joseph, so much for your time. Um, we love this. We hope maybe you'll come back and join us again sometime. Cause oh, I'd, I'd love to. I, oh, I just like I, I like being able to chat with folks and, you know, hang out and talk, particularly about forensics. I hope I've, I've helped in the education of some folks oh, maybe a little bit. Absolutely. Wonderful. And we really, I really want to encourage our listeners to check out um, Joseph's book. Um, if you'll look at our last Instagram post, um, under true crime broads on Instagram. It's called blood beneath my feet by Joseph Scott Morgan. And, um, it is available on Kindle right now on Amazon for nine 99. We would love it if everybody would read it and we'd love to hear your comments, um, on our Instagram page or Facebook group also with our Facebook page also called true crime broads. And, um, we just cannot thank you enough for your time. That was incredibly educational. And I know I'm I'm going to listen to this several times myself because I'm sure I missed something. So um, that was wonderful. Thank you so much, Joseph, for your time. Well, well, thank you, ladies. And y'all take care. And, and uh, thank you to your audience. I hope everybody has a, a fantastic, uh, fantastic Easter weekend. And uh, I hope everybody stays safe at home. Yeah, we, we do too. Thank you. Your wife right. stays safe as well. Thank you so much. And we hope to talk to you again really soon. You bet, ladies. Y'all have a good evening. You too. You too. Talk soon. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.